This is a becoming creature. On this episode, I speak to Nathan about being a business owner, learning better, improving our approach to health, and a bunch about Buddhism. We hope you enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the captivating, kind-hearted, kaleidoscopic Karma Custodian. I first met Karma while spending some time with my first interviewee, Prince Vogel, and it was an absolute pleasure. Nathan, welcome. Well, thank you. What alliteration that was. (laughs) I wanted to start out talking a bit about your business because I think it's really interesting. So can you tell me a bit about what you do and um, and what your operations like? Sure. So uh, I run a math tutoring agency. So basically, uh, we do online math tutoring. So my job is to find the tutors that are good and uh, run all of the marketing and everything and then coordinate between tutors and families. Uh, which involves a lot of working with students and pairing them with the right kind of fit. Awesome. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of running your own business. And can you tell me a bit about your perspective on the future of work in America and what it's like to be uh, kind of a free agent? Sure, sure. Um, I, my thoughts on this are like heavily influenced by Venkatesh Rao, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks a lot about the gig economy and what that looks like uh, and what it's going to look like. So one important thing there is uh, kind of like one of the main reasons why companies hire people rather than just contracting labor out Mm -hmm. is the uh, reliability that they get from having someone on salary. And the one of the main things there is that there's reduced friction between like having a project and getting it uh, completed, basically. Uh, because, you know, when you have people in-house, it's easier to communicate, it's easier to direct, it's easier to spec out work um, and have it finished. However, uh, more and more, it is easier to communicate outside of organizations. I think that as time goes on, companies will know more and more how to spec out work for uh, kind of gig jobs. So what's changed? Like what's shifted such that a gig economy is more viable? Yeah, so um, I I think that communication is one thing in that um, it's much faster you know, there are closer feedback loops with communication where with the internet, you're able to communicate uh, quite well. Now, the other thing is just the dropping costs of doing business um, where, you know, for instance, my business is very cheap to run where previously just to even, you know, start something like this, I would need to take a loan, for instance, to get space or something. So I think that just the 
falling costs of things allow people to put themselves in positions to be contract laborers instead of uh, being on salary so much. I'm thinking about the modern employee in an increasingly gig economy. What does this mean for the person that is typically risk averse, right? They're typically not in sales and a gig economy is way more sales oriented unless we get like some kind of a matchmaking system for um, businesses and these contractors. What does it mean for the future of uh, the employee? Sure. Yeah. I think that, so one thing is I think that these systems are starting to come into place. Uh, Mm. For instance, I think on the company side, many, many companies are starting to have internal standard operating procedures when it comes to hiring contractors. And I think, uh, I think, you know, any major company these days is going to have uh, quite well thought out things like that. Not that this wasn't previously existent, but I think that it's moving to the fore. Um, Let's see. Now, the other thing. So I think for the average employee, the thing that's changing is, uh, you know, job security. I think that it is becoming more and more safe to be a free agent rather than uh, being on salary, especially if you're not, you know, the the top 1% or whatever. Um, so I th- I do think that that means for the majority of people that they need to, uh, you know, there are new kinds of skills that are the most important, right? Mm-hmm. Where, um, you know, in the same way that previously it was important to know the kind of workplace skills that you would put into action in a salary job, if you wanted to be like a middle manager or something, mm-hmm. uh, you would need to know obviously management alongside you know typical corporate speak or uh you know certain social skills and i think that now you have to add or allocate some of that towards uh yeah things like marketing uh especially being able to spec out uh, the work that you're going to do for businesses what benefit do businesses have for using contractors instead of um, these these regular employees? Because I feel like a lot of this comes down to risk aversion, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, they have some kind of leverage over their employees. Um, and, you know, in the I guess in the economy we have now, which is um, increasingly a gig economy, but still, Businesses have this leverage over their employees where they're uh, relying on them for for health benefits and um, they have the risk of being fired. And then when they're fired, they might be able to go on unemployment, but they're going to be losing income. And uh, there's this great risk. And I feel like it's it's kind of similar to America's concept of um, I'm going to make my server work for their tip, that there's that same kind of leverage. So how do you see this developing over time? Yeah, so uh, 
one thing I hope is that, you know, we start to have more cultural and perhaps government kind of protection for mm. these kinds of workers. Um, to be clear, I don't think that salary jobs are going away, right? That's right. still going to exist for lots of people. Um, however, I, I mean, it's obviously going to be better for businesses uh, in some very specific ways. Uh, for instance, not having to look beyond the horizon of a particular product that they might need to, you know, create. Um, uh, you know, I'm reminded of uh, Netflix. Have you seen, there's some old slide deck from Netflix where they talk about their kind of uh, corporate outlook or like how they how they look at hiring people. Have you seen this? No, I've never seen that. Tell me about it. Yeah, so they're, they're like, uh, basically they say, you know, we are like a pro sports team uh, in the same way that you hire an athlete in their prime and you use them so long as they're a good fit with the team. And then when they're out of their prime or they get injured or they're no longer a fit with the team, they get traded. Uh, Netflix basically says that this is how we treat our employees. This is the way that we think about our team, uh, which is kind of radical. Uh, it's obviously already far away from this idea of the company person, right? Right. And so I think that, you know, just being able to hire contractors allows every business to do that at a smaller scale um, and make more bets, right? They can make more bets with products, uh, trying out small products here and there. Interesting. And your business integrates tutoring. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about what people don't know about the learning process and the power of their own learning and how they might be able to learn better? Oh, sure. So one thing that I think about with tutoring is, um, well, first of all, I just think tutoring is incredibly valuable. Uh, and some people have experienced that where they've had tutors. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to know when you haven't, you know, it's, it's hard to know how good it could be. Right. Uh, because there is this unknown of who the tutor that you get is. Right. Um, I think that, you know, one thing people are like super efficient at teaching each other things. And it's almost like we forget that. Like if you, if you sit down with a friend and tell them, you know, like teach me this thing that, you know, they will usually be able to do it pretty well. Um, now maybe they're not an excellent teacher, but the thing is you can find someone who's an excellent teacher and I think that if you can relate to them well, uh, it's like incredibly valuable for uh, learning. Now, obviously, it's expensive because you're taking someone else's time. But I mean, like for myself, I'm, I'm trying to look at like every part of my life where I'm doing something and trying to see if I can like find the person that I can pay to like give me the transmission, if you will. 
Right. It's kind of like what this reminds me of is um, Jerry Seinfeld talks about how performing comedy is this incredibly powerful feedback loop. Um, and that's kind of what a teacher is getting from a classroom is a feedback of like, am I teaching something in an interesting way, in a humorous way? And they're getting that feedback. But when it's one on one, the feedback you're getting is so immediate and empowering that um, it's kind of it's kind of like you have the mobility of walking versus, say, being in a boat where the reaction is much slower for for a traditional teacher in a classroom. Yes, this is huge. And I think about this with math education in particular, Mm -hmm. where students may like sit in on a lesson, learn the concept and then have the homework assignment, do their homework, submit it and get their grade back in like two days. Right. Right. That's an incredibly long feedback loop for them to realize that they're like, they've been doing the problem wrong the whole time. Right. Whereas yeah. with tutoring, it's, it can be like instantaneous, like you're saying. And, uh, you know, obviously that speeds things up. I think it also, you know, it can just be so debilitating to confidence, to someone's confidence if they've spent, you know, 72 hours thinking that they did well on this homework assignment. <laughs> Yeah. Only to realize that all the information they thought they had was totally wrong, you know. Right. It's it's like figuring out that you've been practicing wrong for, for the past three days instead yeah. of someone being after five minutes being like, oh, actually, that's not the right way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And the bad thing is there's no like aftercare, if you will, when someone gets a crushing right. grade like that. I mean, you failed. let's move on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe you can make it up if you like go, you know, do your duty of practicing the right way. But yeah, it's just like, I I don't think people respect how emotionally crushing that could be for a student. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, it's just like, so mechanical, the learning. Yeah. I know I had one course at university where, uh, it was extremely high uh, failout occurrence, like more than 50% of the students failed out of this this class. Um, it was like the bottleneck. And what I did, because I knew it was going to be hard, is I found the best students. And then uh-huh. they had TA hours like every week. And we would go there at like 2 p.m. And we'd be there until like 10 p.m. Just... <laughs> And the TA would be like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. <laughs> and we'd be like, oh, man. So we, we'd all be figuring it out together. But yeah. because we were like a dozen people working out together as a group, there was this constant idea feedback, uh, which I think is really useful. And we did way better than any of the other students. And I think it gets to this concept of being able to learn better with other people as a uh, feedback process. Yeah. What, what course was that? It was advanced microeconomics and it was, it was, it was like a 20 hour a week job. That one class, it was, (laughs) it was insane. I don't, I was just going to say, I bet that that was like a fun time for you, like working with other people and like getting through that hard thing, you know? 
Yeah, it was it was challenging and interesting and definitely better than spending that time home alone, not doing quite as well as, as sure. I would have because I had all these other people I was thinking with. But um, but so you have this business and I feel like reinvestment is a large part of having a business. And you've said, honestly, if your net worth is less than a million dollars and you don't think you can beat the market by investing in yourself, what are you even doing? Like, really? I've, I've thought a lot about this and I, w- I wanted to give you some room to kind of expand on that because I'm sure. thinking about like discount rates and what's the market <laughs> rate and how can I invest in myself in an optimal way? And uh, I, I feel like it's it's actually kind of difficult to know how to invest in yourself. So what do you think about that? Yeah. So quick disclaimer, uh, Bitcoin is maybe better uh over the last <laughs> decade or whatever you know there are there are these weird outsized things i meant what i meant there is like you know the the quote-unquote safe thing it's like you cannot you don't really expect more than 10 percent gains like year over year mm. if you put your mo- money in like index funds or whatever right so i think that most people can do better than that if they you know spend that effort that money on themselves so yeah, what does that look like? I think there are so many ways. Um, I think obviously a good thing to do is to just look at what you end up doing a lot mm. and seeing if you can level up in any of that. So that makes me think of like communication is massive. If you can, you know, pay coaches to help you learn to speak better or like what you're doing, you know, have, uh, a project that might help you like a podcast that might help you uh, develop certain skills. Right. I think those things are huge. Um, But also just improving, improving your quality of life. So I think that, you know, spending money to live in a place where you have a walkable community is probably going to give you, you know, better gains uh, than the market. Um, Of course, you get into some really fuzzy territory with like how to measure that. Yeah, there's like a a quality of life component where if you're only investing in your IRA and if you're only investing in equipment for your business and you're not investing in in your own life and your own experience, then you're really just front like pushing all of this quality life experience to the end of your life mm-hmm. and that's not that that doesn't actually seem like the smartest thing to do I and mean, that's why some people are doing like these mini retirements where they're stopping their work for like a year just to go you know enjoy life because it seems almost gluttonous to be like oh i'm going to just grind 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 and just so that I can just take off and sit by a beach for 20 years and then die. You know, it's like, yeah. it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. I think the the big point with the retirement trial, if you will, uh, is the unknown unknowns, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't actually know what living on the boat will be like. Right. So you might as well try it before you assume that that's what you want. Uh, also, you know, tons of unknown unknowns with uh, yourself. And I think that investing to try and find more of those is it's a good idea. 
yeah, I think iterating is really valuable. But speaking of work and money and everything, uh, you've said <laughs> that people talk about selling out like it's one big decision. It's actually a long and gradual process, and it's way more sinister than people give it credit for. What is your view on the process of selling out? I feel like you're getting at something that's that's spiritual here. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so uh, selling out. Um, yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind when I think of that, I don't know why this is in the fore right now, but I'm thinking of this idea of... Uh, you know, like self-cherishing. We all have this feature of our experience where we cherish ourselves, right? Mm. And this is like really deeply ingrained. Mm -hmm. And I think when we first like start to think about it and know about it, you know, the, the places where we look for it are like, yeah, I spend my money on myself, not on other people, right? Obviously, yeah. that's self-cherishing. But it's so, so subtle, uh, this cherishing uh, at the level of like, you know, you, you go to the cupboard uh, and there are a number of mugs there, right? Maybe you're living with other people and you pick the one that's the best, right? That's like a really small, small way in which we perpetuate these, uh, this self-cherishing. And so in the same way, I think that selling out is like the ultimate kind of like, I care about myself and nothing else. Uh, mm. Though at some level, obviously you don't care about yourself or you haven't thought really hard about what you want. Um, but it's like you slowly, slowly take small steps, right? And slowly start to compromise on your values. And then one day you wake up and realize that you don't have any values that you keep anymore. Um, that's what I imagine it's like. I haven't done that yet. In This Is Water, David Foster Wallace talks about how we all worship something and the main selling point of getting into religion or some kind of spiritual thing is because whatever you worship will end up eating you alive. And um, if what you worship is money, there's no such thing as a person that goes, oh, I got it. I got the million dollars. I'm done. I'm done with money. I don't need to worry about it anymore. I'm set. I'm going to now worship kindness or generosity or something. It's kind of like when we repeat to ourselves, you know, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. Uh, it's almost like a prayer that we're making mm -hmm. that when we're praying for money instead of wellness and love and charity, um, the prayer isn't like you getting on your hands and your knees and praying to God necessarily, but it's actually these things that we, we choose to elevate in small ways every day. Yeah. I mean, and whenever, you know, whenever we have something like that, that we're, you know, going for the mm -hmm. implicit thing there is that it's going to like make us happy. Now, intellectually, that may not be what we believe. We may think, you know, intellectually, this is going to help me in such and such ways. However, like in my experience, at least um, on an emotional level, there is almost always this undertone of like, ah, yes, this will, this will be good. This will, you know, 
make me be some sort of like concretely good emotional thing for me. Um, and yeah, I think that it's self-perpetuating our desires. Once we kind of put ourselves in that channel, then we're moving in that direction. Right. And so we're talking a bit about um, kind of improving our lives in a variety of ways uh, through, for instance, you were set, talking about moving to an area that has a walkable town. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that a lot of people will look at the quality of their lives and the quality of their health through certain metrics. Um, so what do you think about like measuring your health versus being healthy and how should people go about optimizing their lives? Ah, uh, yes. So, uh, you know, in the past of like tracked what I ate, my experience is that that itself tends not to be healthy behavior for me. Uh, I think that, you know, people get so wrapped up in their idea of health and what they hear health is and what you need to do to be healthy that they kind of forget, you know, what being healthy feels like. I think that, you know, being healthy tends to be about doing the things that we're kind of built for, designed for. There's this thing that happens when you don't do what you're designed for, when you don't exercise your structure that you've been put into, where bad things start to happen, right? Hmm. Can you explore that a little bit more? Like, what do yeah. you mean, for instance, what are, what are some examples here? Like our bones are built for load bearing. Hmm. And so if we don't allow our bones to load bear, they start to deteriorate. And we are built as though our bones are load bearing. And so then certain other things in the system tend to go wrong when we're not load bearing with our bones. Or, you know, when we're not walking, when we're not moving our blood uh, through our body, you know, in action. So it's, it's just like, you know, the circumstances are such that we've been put into this machine mm -hmm. that needs to go. Otherwise, the, the small, like, offshoot processes that we care about, like the brain, yeah. <laughs> uh, won't, won't function so well. Now, I think that, you know, lots of people myself included, you know, do this thing where we say, okay, I'm living my life. I'm doing the in my head at the keyboard thing. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to go exercise my body for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. Um, that tends to not feel healthy to me. Uh, what really feels healthy to me is having a lifestyle such that these things are integrated. So that includes, you know, social activities that are active, uh, like Frisbee, that sort of thing. Mm. And, you know, walking a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you look at so many great thinkers that were constantly integrating walking into their work, right? Like Darwin, he would write, 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 and then he would go on like an hour or two hour walk, and then he would write and write and write and write again. So it's kind of like these things are linked up. Like if you force yourself or you coerce yourself into sitting in front of the computer for eight hours a day, you're actually going against 
your best nature. Yeah. I, I love this fact about the, the walking thing. I once had this book, like daily routines of people, mm-hmm. like all these great artists and philosophers and writers and scientists from history. And I swear like 70% of these people are like, wake up four hour walk, three hour walk, you know, right. it's like, do that, then do the thinking. It's pretty incredible. So we're talking a bit about optimizing our lives. And um, I just finished reading Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Oh, there seems to so be, good. yeah, it's 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 good. But there seems to be like a lot going on under the hood of this book. Like I feel oh. like it could have been twice as long if she really wanted to get into the philosophy of everything she was talking about. So mm-hmm. what are some ideas from that book that struck you or did it in any way affect your own behavior? Yeah. Uh, I really like that book. I think it's just so wonderful that that's a popular book. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's some interesting, like surprising things in it about, uh, you know, things that you wouldn't expect to be in it for it to be such a popular book, like her talking about what to do with your magical items and mm-hmm. uh, like how cleaning your bathroom gives you good luck, good fortune, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the the biggest thing that is there to me is just this idea that every time, you know, you take something into your orbit, if you will, you're kind of like piecing off a part of yourself. As in, you know, right now, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're aware of the things that you own on some level, right? Mm-hmm. As in, you have to have them sort of available uh, to access, right? And not only that, they are in your vicinity, right? So you look around, you see your items. Um, and so her, th- her thing is that, you know, we should pay attention to that and really respect that, you know, these things are not just things. They right. are actually, you know, pieces of us in a way, pieces of our attention. And uh, I don't know, we tend to not be so respectful of that fact. Yeah, it makes me think of, I'm not a Freudian, but Freud in uh, The Interpretation of Dreams talks about how he would encounter people that would have things in his dream and then they wouldn't realize until much later that, oh, that was like the church in their childhood neighborhood or something that they only passed by a few times and it mm-hmm. like perfectly matched up and they only realized when they had driven past it, you know, years later or something, but he has a lot of such cases. And if we do in some way hang on to everything that's around us, then it makes me wonder if it's um, kind of taking up some, not taking up space in the mind, but that it's uh, making it so that there are a lot more associations that your brain has to work through in any moment. So it, makes your life a lot more mentally uncluttered when your life is uncluttered. And one thing that she really emphasizes in that book over and over and over again is gratitude. Like she wants you to pick up, you know, your jacket and say, thank you to the jacket for, for serving its purpose. And that when you walk in your home, you say, thank you 
to your house. And, and gratitude is kind of like the thing underlining that entire book. And I thought that was really powerful, especially because she says that like her success rate is a hundred percent, which is very, <laughs> very difficult to like totally believe. But if you're, if it, let's say it is a hundred percent and it's really only that people are getting rid of the stuff that they don't really love and they're making it easier to put things away and they're practicing gratitude. I feel like the practicing gratitude has to be a huge part of being successful in this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's sort of self-reinforcing, right? If you feel, if you introduce these good feelings, whenever you think about how ordered you are, you know, you're going to feel good. It's just an exciting thought to me to think about, you know, having a shelf of, you know, a particular item that I have mm. where every item there is one that I like truly care about that I truly like. It's almost like, you know, if you're, you're wearing like an outfit, right. Mm. And you know that every item that you're wearing is one that you really like that has a different effect than if you're just wearing like a nice jacket or whatever. There's this sort of harmonious like uh, orchestra that comes together. And I think that, you know, when that happens, it's much easier to feel grateful generally, like without uh, reference rather than feeling towards a particular item. You know, this is like the, the lotus in the mud versus all of my other items or whatever. It's nice to, uh, yeah, have a library of all kinds of things that you actually like versus just stuff that you have. Yeah, I still need to go through that entire process. She's like, "Oh, it's it's like a six month process." I'm like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle that down the road." Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's but fun I'm when gonna... you do it. Yeah, you do notice. Uh, at least you know, in my experience, there is this kind of uh, not sure where it's going on, but it does feel like a sort of psychic lightening. Yeah, remove things. And it does kind of sound to me like Kondo is um, integrating another form of um, secularizing Buddhism. Like people have already done this for meditation, and I think she's doing it for Zen in a certain kind of way. So Buddhism is actually something I wanted to spend some time talking to you about. And you've said that in the West, Buddhism is confused with calm mindfulness and in the east buddhism is confused mm. with being a good person being a good community member and that western notions of zen have a very slow tranquil vibe when actual traditional zen monasteries are very intense like monks have a few minutes to clean the whole meditation mm. hall and they're running around going really fast so in response to this can you share some of the different Buddhist forms, such as like the wrathful Buddhist deities and some of your ideas regarding uh, kind of the West's picture of Buddhism and how that might be wrong. Buddhism mm -hmm. is this institution, right? That hopefully is carrying through this thing like the Buddha Dharma, the way of Buddha or whatever. Um, I think, you know, what people culturally don't get about the way of Buddha or whatever, the Buddha Dharma, is that 
it has a single aim, which is to become enlightened, right? And so in as much as uh, Buddhism is interested in being tranquil, is interested in being a good person, it's only to that aim, right? So like people will be surprised that, you know, a Buddhist is not a vegetarian, where that may not be, you know, it, it like not being a vegetarian may not be helpful towards their goal, but maybe they're moving quickly towards it in some other way. Uh, so that's like a fundamental misinterpretation uh, that people tend to have just culturally about this idea of Buddhism. Um, you mentioned wrathful deities. Uh, I think, I mean, we can get into this idea of the deities if you like, um, I think one important thing about wrathful is that's almost a mistranslation. Mm-hmm. It should be more like fierce. These are, deities are not wrathful. They are, they have like a fierce kind of uh, loving compassion. So can you tell me more about that? Like this, this fierce love? There is a level of the way that actions appear to us. Mm-hmm. And then there is a level of what those actions actually are from the doer we tend to think that actions that look uh, actions that look good from the outside mm-hmm. are actions that are good internally. And we tend to think that actions that look harsh from the outside are harsh internally uh, for the doer, right? Now, that's not necessarily the case. Someone can do something very harsh with greatest of intentions and maybe even the greatest wisdom uh and you know the idea of the fierce deity is that ideally in the enlightened state we embody both sides of that as in we are able to act gently when gently is necessary we are able to act forcefully when that is necessary but no matter where we are our intentions are right and our wisdom is correct but can you can you talk to me about some like uh, some of the misinterpreted aspects of Buddhism, like we were talking about earlier, or some um, concepts and practices in Buddhism that perhaps the West doesn't interpret correctly? Sure. So what immediately comes to mind is like ideas of karma. I think that you know this is like all over the board here in the West. In part because, you know, the karma, we've we've fit several traditions, karma, into one word, karma, uh. that we use culturally, right? So we say bad karma, instant karma, karma chameleon, karma custodian, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> we say it a lot, right? But um, I think, you know, the Buddhist ideas of karma are very clear, um, where, you know, karma means... Uh, like cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And so that you hold something up and drop it and it falls to the ground, that is karma because one of the things going on is gravity. This ball has mass, whatever. Uh, so then in that same way, you know, when the Buddha talks about karma, this is kind of like knowing the gravity uh the gravity, if you will, like the 
natural forces at work mm -hmm. in terms of action and its consequences, right? So included there are things like, you know, if you are to steal, if you start stealing from someone that you live with, that is going to cause certain things to happen to you. For instance, you are going to start being more fearful of your own items because now you've introduced this idea into your world that people steal, right? Right. People tend not to uh, be so aware of that. And I think another important thing in Buddhism that is fundamentally different from other religions are these uh, moral or these proscriptions and prescriptions that the Buddha gave. Uh, so where, you know, in the Christian tradition, it is very strict that you should not kill. Uh, the Buddhist tradition, it's more like a guideline, like I recommend that you do not kill. And so how does that make sense? Well, uh, I think basically the single assumption is that everyone wants happiness. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, animal or human or whatever. Uh, wants to be happy. Um, now, happy is a loaded term, and maybe we don't actually know what that is, but something's not quite right where we are. So it's clear that, you know, wherever we are in this moment is not our final resting place. And we kind of want to move in the direction of the thing that we think is going to make us feel best. So within that context, then there are certain things that are recommended or not recommended. It's like, oh, so you, you say that you want to be happy? Well, then I recommend that you do this and you don't do these other things. So that's the way that karma is in Buddhism, which has some really interesting translations into what the culture around Buddhism looks like and how people uh, practice. Hmm. You've said that finding suffering uncomfortable and love comfortable is Buddha nature. And then you say wandering beings is a term often used to describe those in samsara. The idea that samsaric beings are not home, not secure, not comfortable. So we wander looking for solutions. Seems like we aren't looking in the right places. So how do you resolve these ideas that um, finding suffering uncomfortable is the Buddha nature, and yet being a wanderer is the nature of samsara. Right. So the nature of samsara is such that we are not resting in our Buddha nature. We are not there. So something seems to be off. Uh, and, you know, the, the Buddhist idea here that commonly gets misinterpreted is this idea of like life is suffering. It's mm -hmm. such a, such a like crazy kind of misappropriation of proper translation, I guess. Right. Um, really it's, it's about this uh, fundamental process we're engaged in wherein every moment we're kind of hunting for the thing that's going to fix things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, through meditation, we're, uh, you know, through meditation, we can look closer and closer at our experience 
at how when we breathe out and we are just ending our end ending our out breath mm-hmm. we are hungering for the in breath and when we breathe in when we're ending that we are hungering for the out breath and so forth and that is happening all of the time so the idea is that in every moment we're kind of hunting for something uh, so that very experience suggests that where we are is not the place that we want to be right so mm-hmm. that you find suffering uncomfortable is that does suggest that it's not your nature you don't belong there um it's kind of a poetic thing but so is that to say that the buddha nature is always comfortable is never suffering discomfort yeah so the idea is that when we're in this state of buddha when we've awoken from this uh samsaric way in which we're engaging with things mm-hmm. we'll no longer suffer in this same way and mm-hmm. so then we are we have recognized our nature uh, this is one thing that particularly what's called the nalanda tradition which is what is in tibet now talked about where they say that the difference between samsara and nirvana is recognition so recognition of this buddha nature um, so the idea is that when we are able to see clearly the true nature of things the true nature of our experience our reality our psychology then we will be freed from this uh, affliction hmm. that's spinning us round and round for me this kind of gets to right action and you said that for the greeks defeating i'm gonna try this akrasia is that correct yeah yeah for the Greeks, defeating akrasia is about overcoming impulse in order to steer towards right action. And the Buddhist idea is to transform through wisdom every impulse until right action is spontaneous. So my question is kind of like, how is this Greek concept about overcoming impulse? How does that compare to spontaneous impulse in Buddhism? And how do we achieve this spontaneous impulse for right action. I had something I was going to say and I forgot. Uh, Oh, so the first thing that I'll say is this is almost exclusive to Mahayana Buddhism. I'm not very well versed in uh, Theravada or the Southern transmissions of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. However, in the Northern transmissions of Buddhism, the Mahayana is very much about this, uh, transforming the being such that uh, these impulses are strictly in line with the nature of reality. So the akrasia ideas, this akrasia is this battle with, uh, you know, a weakness of will. So you know the right thing to do, and all of a sudden the wrong thing to do is your impulse, and how do you overcome, right? So you need to defeat a creation. You need to have strength there. The So then the Greek idea of the great person is one who has strong enough will to just like swat mm-hmm. away any impulse like that. The Buddhist idea of the great person, the bodhisattva, is one who no longer has these impulses because through their wisdom, they've seen how 
these impulses are negative, right? Negative to them, negative to others. So there's this really interesting idea that I quite like of, uh, you know, there are these like levels. Uh, so a 10th level bodhisattva, someone who's almost there. Apparently, the, there's this idea that even the slightest misdeed, even the slightest, uh, you know, wrong thought, they see it like a cliff side where they know if they were to engage with it, they would fall from their high place, if you will. And so there's this idea that through wisdom, these things start to become so clear, so vivid how, you know, allowing the mind to engage in hatred is detrimental to oneself and others mm. that, you know, it, it's just not even entertained by the system. Right. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like just the, um, the mere threat of going over the cliff is enough for you to stand several feet away from it and maybe look at it, but not really engage with it whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah. Now, actualizing that is another thing. So how should we be thinking about um, cultivating wisdom toward right action in a real right. sense? Yeah. So, so I would say that, you know, courage and charity are can be right action. Now, charity, because you want to look like a right person, like a good person, that is not right action. So the the very first thing that we need to do is we need to make our minds heavy. We need, need to be able to have a mind that we can place onto things, a mind that we can place onto our experience of a particular thing and be able to watch what happens. When we can do that, then we can start to learn what we're doing, right? So what is this motivation I have now? Uh, why is it here? And what is, you know, driving it? So uh, the Buddhist idea of right action, uh, especially in the Mahayana tradition, is action that is for the benefit of others, mm -hmm. right? And so there's this idea of the, the one versus all of the other beings right? Which are we going to, to serve? And so then, you know, we might look at our, uh, at our minds when we're engaging with some activity that is going to be, you know, consequentially beneficial, quote unquote, beneficial, right? What is actually beneficial? Hard to say, but, you know, say we're going to uh, help a bunch of people, or save a bunch of wildlife, mm -hmm. we should watch our minds and see if our motivations are actually there with, you know, benefiting the beings, <laughs> right? Right. And how do we go about the process of making our minds heavy? That sounds like it's a sensitivity thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, there's this so this is the element of, uh, you know, people will have heard like shamatha and vipassana, right? Mm -hmm. So shamatha is this uh, characteristic of the mind that is uh, focused. So it's our ability to stay put. And shamatha is this ability, or vipassana is this ability of the mind to see things and like quickly update, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so before we can get to vipassana, 
before we can really have a good blade to do Vipassana with, make our mind into a good blade to do Vipassana with, we need to be able to like uh, rest our mind with this calm abiding ability. And so, you know, that's where you get into classic things like watching your breath, training concentration in that way. Um, I think this is one, this is another thing that people tend to confuse about uh, meditation Mm -hmm. is this idea of, oh, I'm doing shamatha meditation. I'm doing vipassana meditation. These are different. Uh, They're not actually different. These are like two sides of the coin, right? Right. that are happening at every moment. Uh, and there is this notion that you do shamatha first to get to Vipassana. And that's only because our minds are not, like our blade isn't heavy enough right now to actually cut through anything, right? We can't even, you know, truly watch our motivations or whatever, maybe, because mm-hmm. our minds aren't uh, clear enough, aren't focused. So you developed shamatha through the traditional means. Yeah. Something that I've been thinking about as we're discussing kind of um, getting ourselves to a place where our spontaneous impulse is toward right action is I've been thinking about Buddhism in terms of like Alzheimer's and dementia Mm. and and what that might mean for, um, for somebody that's really looking at these Buddhist ideas critically. And it, it sounds like one add like advantage to this is that if you could actually cultivate your impulses deeply enough, then even if you were suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia, then maybe you wouldn't be responding with as much um, suffering, I suppose. Like, I I wonder if, if that is, you know, something that people can cultivate. Yeah. So there are stories of great masters for which, things like this have happened. Uh, their mind starts to degenerate and they know it. They start to, you know, call on other people during teachings to like finish their talk or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, if you can fundamentally rewrite the way in which you are choosing to do actions, mm-hmm. as in if you are able to uproot this self-grasping and turn it into care for others, then, you know, no matter what state of mind, uh, no matter what your IQ or your lucidity, you know, you're going to act in the right way. One kind of measure that the Buddhists love to talk about is, you know, in dreams. So they say, do you keep your vows in your dreams? (laughs) The Dalai Lama famously says, you know, like people ask him how his progress is, like how accomplished he is. And he says, you know, now I've reached the state where in a dream, I remember that I'm a monk. Is this why you go by the handle dreams? Oh, uh, no, not exactly. But dreams are quite a thing in, in Buddhism. Uh, there's this idea that the nature of reality is like a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is pointing at you know the emptiness of experience how everything is conditionally arising uh at like that's just how it is 
Right. And that's what's going on in our minds at all times, which is just like our dreams. And so th there's some nice things there, like thinking about how, uh, you know, dreams are like not true. Something stressful can happen in a dream and you wake up and it's gone like that. Right. So that's there with like our experience. Every moment can be gone like that. Right. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Certainly with kind of like the way we see the world is often a kind of fiction. And I think trying to see past the way in which it's a fiction, in which it's a story we just made up and we're holding on to is a lot of what people are kind of working through when they're practicing Buddhism. Hmm. And this gets to kind of like, um, like trying to get in touch with reality and seeing things for what they are. And I've been thinking a lot about honesty and yeah. um, like for me, I think that honesty is the best policy the vast majority of the time. But then I try, I, I think of these kind of, ed, think of these edge cases where people are, um, you know, bad actors and mm -hmm. they're trying to intimidate you or coerce you into doing, um, revealing something for the their own advantage and for the damnation of others. And I, I think about these edge cases and whether I should lie and where kind of lie fits into all of this and where authenticity fits into all of this. So how do you think of honesty in these difficult situations and in general? Yeah. The Buddhists do some really interesting uh, mental gymnastics, logical gymnastics to get around this. Um, I'd say one thing is, uh, you know, why is, why is like honesty important to the speaker, right? The one who's saying things, I think, you know, being honest, it's sort of the same thing as like the, the idea of selling out, right? As soon as you compromise on your honesty, you've made it clear, like you've, uh, informed your system that you are able to compromise on you know, something that you hold, right? So if you say, I'm not going to lie, and then you lie, you've told yourself that, you know, the things you, t the, you've told yourself that the things you commit to, you won't actually commit to them, right? And so I think that, you know, the really important thing is to just be clear when you are doing something like that, mm -hmm. that this is, you know, this is a lie, right? <laughs> we shouldn't we shouldn't take it lightly when we lie. I think that's the important piece. It's not that, you know, you must never lie because lying itself is, you know, truly detrimental, but really, you know, what are we telling our minds? What is the karma we're creating within our own mind stream? So that's, you know, I, I think that whenever there's a a uh, place where we have to engage in something that's like a questionable action. Right. It's just like being paying very close attention, being very clear with yourself that like, I just did this thing and, you know, I'm, I chose to do it, but that was like an edge case or whatever, you know? Right. And it also makes me think about like when you're really looking really close at truth telling and you're, kind of walking beyond the idea of um, you shouldn't be deceptive and you shouldn't 
mislead people. I think beyond that, beyond not misleading people is mm. a practice of residing in your truth and um, mm. acting in a way that is true to you. And I feel like that is a much more clear way to interface with these kind of interactions because mm. the true you may be an individual that protects another individual from bad actors. And then you have to look at that action in a certain way where you're not um, damaging your soul, but you're, you're rather choosing the best possible action given your, your limited faculties, right? I, I think a lot about that, that if we had infinite time and infinite creativity, we could always say something that was in no way deceptive and that would result in proper action. But that's not the world right. we live in. We live in this really kind of limited mental space and we live in, in very li limited time and then we're actively doing our best. And that yeah. through time we can cultivate this um, truth in our own life. And that is like totally different from just like not lying. Right, right. And I think another thing there is like, you can be true to yourself and like telling these like little fibs or whatever. Right. And, you know, like you should question if that's really the true you that you want to be, right? You can change who you are and maybe like the true you is not quite there yet. And you want to change uh, that in some way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. And, uh, so I've learned a lot. Are there any other finishing um, topics or, or anything you wanted to throw out there to wrap up? I wanted to say like with the, the selling out thing that we talked about earlier, yeah. I remembered like my main point there, which is that when you have, you know, it's the same as the honesty thing. When you have a standard that you set yourself to, mm -hmm. like I... I don't compromise my values for money. And then you do it once you've already set the scene for all of the other times you're going to do it. Right. Because right. you've compromised your values that one time. Right. It's inviting a kind of threat for your soul. And like in stoicism, they talk about how like um, someone that does you wrong does not damage you, but it, they damage themselves. And I don't really think about the soul as something that can be damaged in the way uh -huh. that the Stoics talk about it. But I do think of it as like a waning and a waxing. And actually yeah. the way you're talking about the mind being heavy is a really great example of that. Um, because if you have um, a soul that has been waned by all of these bad actions, then you're going to be extremely reactive. You're going to be like something that's, that's a light that you're yes. going to be extremely reactive and, and fragile, whereas you can become significantly more stable by being really consistent in your virtue. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like the, what is the true you? Maybe the true you is this like really wishy-washy leaf, but you can become more stable, more strong, uh, better in that way. Very nice. Well, <laughs> well it was a great pleasure to have you on, Nathan. And uh, thank you for teaching me so much about, about Buddhism and, and uh, business and learning and everything. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. It was a fun time.
I really enjoyed getting to talk to Nathan. For more episodes, check out becomingcreature.substack.com. If you like this episode, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you to Frank IV and Murphy Chicken for the music. And thank you to Foreshaper for the show art. And I will see you next time.